I have a question for you this morning from the world of football. So how many of you have any interest at all in football? This is better than first service. I'm encouraged. All right. Here is the question. Which NFL quarterback has led the most fourth quarter comebacks? And here are your choices. Three to choose from. Here's the first. Who's that? Okay, some of you know Peyton Manning. Here's the second choice. Tom Brady and the hometown favorite, Danny Marino, and he's not the winner. Some of you already knew that. Who is the winner? Okay, that's right. This guy. No, this guy. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Peyton Manning. Um, I was sharing with First Service that um, there was an event that took place in the world of basketball, and we just didn't have any basketball fans for service that I could see. So any basketball fans here, March Madness people? Um, some of you know about an event that took place this uh, past weekend. A number 16 seed beat it, a number one seed, and it was a team that I had not heard of before. Um, it, was the, it was Maryland Baltimore County Retrievers, and they beat Virginia, which for most of the season was like, you know, one of the best teams in the nation. But it was just a remarkable underdog comeback kind of story. And I was thinking about an issue of Sports Illustrated that I saw back in November of 2001. How many of you are familiar with that magazine? Well, they were doing a spot on the World Series that year. And it was really cool because the New York Yankees were playing the Arizona Diamondbacks. And Arizona came back in the final inning of the last game to win the World Series. So it got the editors thinking about comebacks, and so they decided to publish a top 10 list of the greatest comebacks in history. And it was quite an impressive list. Here are some people who made the cut, top 10. Number one was Elvis Presley. Um, and that was because of a TV show that was aired in 1968 that helped him come back and revive his sagging career. Another was Harry Truman from the world of politics. He, um, won this victory over Thomas Dewey when all the polls said that he was going to lose by a landslide. So he came back and won a victory there. Michael Jordan was included. Some of you remember when he left his first love of basketball to play what sport? Baseball and then returned. So they said, man, that's a great comeback. This was interesting. The human race was on the all-time list because the human race recovered from something called the Black Plague. This is back in the 14th century. 25 million Europeans died but the human race rebounded, we came back. And then the number two spot was shared by two countries, Japan and Germany. Um, and the reason for this is that even though they were devastated by World War II, they both became world economic powers within a generation. But the number one comeback of all time, according to the editors of Sports Illustrated Magazine, Jesus Christ. You believe that? It was in the, in the list. Jesus Christ, A.D. 33. Now, the erection of Jesus certainly is the greatest comeback in all of history. And his comeback had profound influence on the lives of his disciples. And so here's the question that I want us to consider this morning. What can we learn from the story of Jesus and his disciples that can help us come back from failure? Now, think with me about this. How many of you have ever watched a little child learn to walk? All of us have been through that experience. We've helped little kids walk. Look at this really cute picture. Isn't that adorable? Now, if that child is learning to walk and the helpful person lets go of their hands, what's going to happen to the baby? It's going to fall right on its bottom. Now, can you imagine a baby saying to him or herself, man, I'm just, I'm not cut out for walking. I can't believe how clumsy I am. 
I think I'm just going to remain a crawler for the rest of my life. They don't say that. They don't think that. What do they do? They get up and they try again and again and failure after failure, they finally learn to walk. But it seems that as we get older, we have a growing fear of failure. And so today, I want us to think about what do we do with our failure and our fear of failure? And here's why that's such an important question. Because failure is an experience that everyone faces. Nobody gets a pass. Nobody is exempt. We all experience failure, and that was true of Jesus' disciples. Look at these verses. Tonight, all of you will desert me, Jesus told them. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Now, how did the disciples respond to this incredible news that Jesus shares with them? Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Peter, Jesus replied, truth is, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. No, Peter insisted, not even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And notice this, all the other disciples vowed the same. When the disciples failed Jesus, was Jesus surprised? No. When you and I fail Jesus, is he surprised? No, because failure is an experience that we all face. Now think about this. Think about some of the arenas in which you have failed throughout your life. Think about, think about school. And you don't have to raise your hand. Ever fail a pop quiz or a test or a course or a grade? And then there is the world of sports. Um, maybe you failed to make the team or make... Um, first team, you weren't a starter, or maybe your team lost an important game or even a championship. And then there's the world of work. And there's all these ways that we can fail. We can fail to get the job. We can fail to keep the job. Maybe you launched a small business and it just didn't work out. I read a, a story this week about failure at work. It was actually from, from um, England when the firefighters went on strike and the British Army was called on to provide emergency firefighting services. And they got a call from this elderly lady who wanted them to rescue her cat. So they came out, they rescued the cat in record time, and they were getting ready to leave. And the lady said, oh, no, you guys are heroes. I want you to come in and, and talk to me and have tea. And so they did, and they were hanging out and having a great time. So they got in the fire truck to drive away, and they were waving, and they were distracted. And the fire truck ran over her cat and killed it. Talk about a colossal failure. And then, how about this? Any of you ever try to, uh, to do something? Maybe you saw a TV show, a do-it-yourself project, and you thought, I can do that. And you go and get all the supplies, and about halfway through, you go, <laughs> I need to call for help. There are all kinds of failures. What about this? Some of you um, like to garden. Any gardeners here? Yeah, some of you thought you had a green thumb. It turned out you had a black thumb because your plants all died, and you had this sense of failure. But probably the arena that really affects us most deeply is that of relationships. You know, maybe it was a, a dating relationship that just unraveled or a friendship that fell apart. Maybe as you look back over your life, there was a, a divorce that you've never fully recovered from because you still feel like a failure. Or maybe you're looking down the road and you expect that sometime soon, a relationship 
is going to fail. What do we do with our failure? As such, an important question, because we all experience it, and nobody likes it. And this is, church, this is something that I think is, is really important, because sometimes when people encounter failure, they're energized by it. And other people are paralyzed by failure. Sometimes people fail and it pushes them to to new commitments and new courage and they just keep moving forward. And other people are utterly defeated by failure. And that's because of this principle on your outline. Take a look at this. It says failure can be a tyrant that destroys your life. A tyrant that destroys your life. How many of the disciples ran away when Jesus was arrested? Yeah, every single one of them did, but one of the disciples had a much deeper sense of his failure. Look at these verses. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and other leaders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the money onto the floor of the temple and went out and hanged himself. I've shared this with you in the past that in my role as a pastor and in my former career as a firefighter and paramedic, I have been on the scenes of many suicides. And I've read the notes left behind. And so often there are two words that you read again and again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry that I let you down. I'm sorry that I I just can't go on. What we do with the sorrow of failure is critically important. And the Bible points that out in this verse. This is from 2 Corinthians. It says this, For God can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. We will never regret that kind of sorrow. But sorrow without repentance, without a change of mind or a change of heart, is the kind that results in death. Failure can be so serious that it causes people to take their own lives. It causes death. But it causes death in another way, the death of dreams, the the death of, of hope, the death of possibilities. People sometimes, because of failure, just won't accept new challenges the risk of future failure is too great because the the pain of past failures is just too deep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There was another disciple who, who failed Jesus, not once, but three times, and his failure was all the more stinging because he said, Jesus, I will never let you down. But Jesus did. He denied Jesus. But unlike Judas, Peter learned this that failure can be a teacher that God uses to restore your life. Failure can be a teacher that God uses to restore your life. Somebody asked Winston Churchill one time, what most prepared you to lead Great Britain through World War II? Now, some of you may remember that Great Britain virtually stood alone against Nazi Germany. And so in response to that question, what prepared you the best? This is what Churchill said. It was the time I repeated a class in grade school. The interviewer said, you mean you flunked a grade? Churchill said, I never flunked in my life. I was given a second opportunity to get it right. Failure can be a teacher that moves us forward. There's a fascinating story in a book called Art and Fear. 
and it talks about how failure is closely tied to learning. There was a ceramics teacher, and this is what he did. He took his class and divided it in half. This half of the class was going to be graded on the number of pots they produced, the quantity of pots. So if you turned like 50 pounds of pots, you got an A, 40, you get a B, and so on. And then the other part of the class, the other half, was going to be graded on the quality that they produced. So they only had to make one pot, but it better be really, really good. And what was interesting is that the best quality pots came from the group that were making the most pots. Because this is what happened. As they were making pots over and over again, they were constantly learning from their mistakes and growing in their ability as artists. Now, the other group, the quality group, they would sit around and talk about the perfect pot, and they would theorize and, and be anxious that it wasn't going to be perfect. And what's fascinating is that with pottery, trying and failing, and then learning from failure and trying again produces the best result. That's so often true in our lives as well. Because listen, when you fail, you get, to, you get to choose the role you will assign your failure. It can be a tyrant that hurts you, or it can be a teacher that helps you. Now, Peter allowed Jesus to use a failure in his life to move him to a greater commitment to Jesus and to a restored relationship. And think about this. What happens to Peter after he fails? What does he go back to doing? What was he doing before Jesus called him? Yeah, he was a fisherman. Because he may, he may fail as a disciple, but he knows how to fish, so he wants to do something that will make him feel successful. So he goes fishing, and there's a story. This is in John's Gospel, chapter 21. And Peter and his friends have been out fishing all night long. They haven't caught a single thing. And so the sun's coming up, and they see this shadowy figure on the beach, and this person yells out, Hey, you caught any fish? And they yell back, No! And this person has the audacity to say, well, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they do, and suddenly that net is about to break because it's filled with fish. And John looks at Peter and says, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, impetuous Peter, doesn't wait for the boat to get to shore. He just dives in the water. And you can imagine the scene. Here's Jesus. He's, he's sitting near this charcoal fire, and, and Peter comes up dripping wet. The other disciples are following closely behind him. And it must have been really tense because they all know it's Jesus, but nobody wants to say a word or ask him who he is. We pick the story up in these verses in John's Gospel. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, that word these is not a reference to the other disciples. It's a reference to the fish. Peter, do you love me more than these fish that you just caught? How does Peter respond? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time Jesus, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? You see, Jesus wanted Peter to move past his failure. 
And friends, that's true for me and you as well. Jesus wants us to move beyond our failure, but how can we do that? How can we move beyond failure? And there are two important principles that I want to point out from this story. And the first is this. Examine your heart so that you can understand and own your failure. Examine your heart so you can understand and own your failure. Now, when you fail, who do you typically blame for your failure? Everybody but yourself. It could be the circumstances. It could be other people. We can make a thousand excuses, but so often we don't take personal responsibility for our failure. And one of the lessons here is that Jesus is calling Peter to take a look at his heart. Peter, do you love me? Now, notice what Peter doesn't say. Peter doesn't say, well, you know what, Lord, truth is, I was right there in the garden, and and the soldiers came in. I pulled out my sword, and I even cut this guy's ear off, and I was ready to fight, and you told me to put my sword away. So whose fault is it? Peter didn't say that. He didn't say, you know, Lord, did you see the size of those soldiers? These guys are huge. I mean, if these other guys hadn't run away, I wouldn't have run away either. Peter never made an excuse. And notice this. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these fish that you just caught? Which is another way of saying, Peter, do I really have first place in your life? Now, church, this is a critical question when it comes to dealing with failure because, and listen carefully, anything that hinders your relationship with Jesus, anything that competes with God for first place in your life will ultimately cause you to fail. Do you realize that? And the flip side is true. Anything that enables you to grow in your relationship with Jesus and become more like him will enable you to succeed. There's a writer, his name is Morris West, and he said this, if a man is centered on himself, the smallest risk is too great for him because both success and failure can destroy him. But if he's centered on God, then no risk is too great because success is already guaranteed, the successful union of the creature and the creator. Now, to move beyond failure, we have to understand and own our failure. And here's something else we have to do. We have to take action to put our failure behind us. Take action to put your failure behind you. Even though Peter has failed, Jesus is calling him to take action. He says, Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Peter, I'm going to reinstate you to ministry to do what I've created you to do so you can fulfill your purpose, so you can minister to other people in this world. And even though Peter is a broken man, Jesus can still use him. And that's true of us. Even though we are broken people, God can still use us to carry out his purpose. And I think this is so, so very important. When we fail, we have to understand our failure. We have to own our failure. But then we have to get up and move beyond our failure. And the thing that is so difficult sometimes is to take that first step. But when we don't move beyond our failure, we start feeling helpless. We start feeling hopeless. And we do this. We procrastinate. Why? Because we're afraid that we might fail again. Or sometimes we avoid situations where we might have to take a risk because we're afraid we might fail. Or we do this. We, we have this pain in our heart because of all this past failure and regret. So what do we do? We try to find a way to ease the pain. And of course, as we do that, our lives can begin 
to unravel. Think about marriage for just a moment. What is it that causes the death of a marriage? And I think this is the foundational thing. It's a loss of hope. When you no longer hope that your marriage can change, when you no longer hope that you can change, you stop trying. And when you stop trying, things begin to really go south. There's no motivation. But think about this, and we know this is true. If you've got the union of two imperfect people, which is what marriage is all about, two people who fail, both of them need to own their failure. Both of them need to understand their failure. Both of them need to get up by God's grace and move forward because when you do that, it restores hope. And here's why that's so important, because everybody, everybody fails. And church, this is the beauty of the gospel the gospel addresses our failure in such a fundamental way, and this is what I mean. Remember the time that people asked Jesus, what's the greatest command? Do you remember his response? He said there are two. The greatest commandment is to what? Some of you know this. To love God with all you've got, your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the deal. When we fail to obey God's commands, there's a word for this in the Bible, three-letter word with an I in the middle. What is it? Sin. So sin is fundamentally a failure to love, to love God, to love people. And the fact is we've all failed to do that. And what the Bible tells us is because of this failure, there's a separation between us and God. God's holy, God's perfect, we're not. And God is just, which means that he has to judge every sin we've ever committed. And that just punishment, according to the Bible, is to die and to be separated from God forever. And nobody's exempt. The Bible says, for we all sin and fall short of God's glorious standard. And that's the bad news. We're in a helpless and hopeless situation because we are failures. But God, in his great love, made a way to deal with our failure. And I think this is so fascinating. There needed to be a human being who was free from failure. Now, Adam and Eve failed miserably. But there was a person who came they call him in Scripture, the Apostle Paul calls him the second Adam because he got it right. And he loved perfectly. And that's Jesus. That's the story of redemption that God the Father sends God the Son to earth. And this, this God-man, this, this human being who's also divine, Jesus lives a perfect life. And then he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and go to a cross so that our failure could be forgiven. And it's just amazing that God loves us that much that he would allow his son to die, that, that God the Father would take our sin and put it on his sinless son. Jesus had done nothing wrong, but he was willing to take our sin and our shame and our regrets upon himself. And that's what happens on the cross. Jesus dies in our place, and then he comes back to life because God accepts that payment for our sins. And Jesus says, look, I want to give you a new life. I want to deal with your failure. I want you to experience forgiveness, but you've got to come to me in faith and trust me. Believe in me, follow me. Now, here's the deal. When you become a Christian, that is an incredible comeback from failure. But do you continue to fail when you're a Christian? You, this is an easy question. Yeah. Yeah, I failed back in 1989. Haven't failed since. <laughs> I failed last week. I failed somehow today, I'm sure. But here's the thing. We are continually dealing with failure. Isn't that true? And so how we deal with coming back from failure is a way of life for a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to understand. This is, 
man, I wish I could talk about this for quite some time, the relationship between failure and grace, because it is so important. I was talking to our staff this um, Tuesday. We have a staff meeting, and I was telling them, um, I was actually confessing. I was saying, you know, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And uh, some of you know who you are, right? And here's the deal. When you're a recovering perfectionist, or even if you're not recovering, you tend to beat yourself up over failure. And I lived so much of my life doing exactly that. You know, when I was a kid, if I struck out in baseball, if I, you know, didn't get a good enough grade, I could just beat myself up. And, and as a young man, as a, an adult, as a father, as a husband, man, when I blew it, I would just beat myself up for days, for weeks, sometimes longer. And then I discovered that there is this profound connection between failure and grace. And I remember I was having a conversation with a guy that I was going to, to graduate school with. His name was, was Hunter. He was from Ireland. And he had this really cool brogue. And we were talking one day, and he said, I'm not going to imitate him. He said, Dudley, he said, you really need to understand the, the relationship between grace and failure. He said, you know what it is? And I said, well, I don't know. Why don't you explain it to me? And he said, here's the deal. When you fail, the time it takes you to get up and put that failure behind you is directly related to how much you understand and know God's grace. I think that's profound, and it's true. Because the more you experience God's grace, the more you accept God's grace, the shorter the time between when you fail and when you get up and move forward asking God to help you. And so what do we do when we fail? We go to God and say, God, I failed. God, forgive me. I'm sorry. Would you please help me move forward? And the better we understand God, the better we know his grace in our lives, the shorter that time is going to be. And here's the deal. If you're a recovering perfectionist, you're not just hard on yourself. You're hard on who else? Everybody around you, especially those who are closest to you. And understanding grace is so critical to those relationships because what you need to do is open your heart to God's grace. There is a waterfall of grace that we can stand under and accept this grace for ourselves and then give that grace to others. And, and church, we want to be a grace place. When you're in a church family, you should be able to be honest about your failure and be surrounded by people who will say, I get it. I have failed too. And I want to encourage you and pray for you. I want to show you a, a video clip from a movie that I really enjoyed the first time I watched it. I've watched it more than once. But it's about a, a young man who has a dream, and his dream is playing football at the University of Notre Dame. Some of you know who I'm talking about already. Who is it? It's Rudy, exactly. And so Rudy's been trying for two years to, uh, to, to make the team the dress team so he can run out onto the field. And he's just, he feels like a failure, so he quits. And then he has this unlikely conversation with this person who knows all too well the cost of quitting. Let's take a look. What you doing here? Don't you have practice? Not anymore. I quit. Oh. Well, since when are you the quitting kind? I don't know. I just don't see the point anymore. So you didn't make the dress list. There are greater tragedies in the world. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. To prove to everyone prove that I worked... Prove what? 
I was somebody. Oh, you are so full of crap. You're five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing, and you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. And you're also going to walk out of here with a degree from the University of Notre Dame. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. And after what you've gone through, if you haven't done that by now, it ain't going to never happen. Now go on back. Sorry, I never got you to see your first game in here. I've seen too many games in this stadium. I thought you said you never saw a game. I've never seen a game from the stands. You were a player? I rode the bench for two years. Thought I wasn't being played because of my color. I got filled up with a lot of attitude, so I quit. Still not a week goes by, I don't regret it. And I guarantee a week won't go by in your life, you won't regret walking out, letting them get the best of you. You hear me clear enough? As I watched that clip this week, I was thinking that God is able to redeem our failures. And we can learn things when we fail. Things that we can share with other people to encourage them. To tell them to hang in there and not give up. And when it comes to regrets, realize this, that we can't change the past. And we know that but we can write a new future depending on God. And church, Easter is right around the corner. And Easter is a time that the people can come and, and hear a message about coming back from failure. And I want to encourage you to, to invite people to fill up these chairs. People in your family, friends, um, people at work, people at school, wherever they happen to be. Because the message of Easter is a message for all of us. Because we've all failed. And we all need to know how we can make a comeback by depending on the one who made the greatest comeback of all time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much this morning for, for your grace. A grace that not only brings us to faith, a grace that forgives us a grace that sets us free. And God, I pray that this truth of the gospel would deeply penetrate our hearts, that we would understand, Lord, that, that our past is really forgiven, that we can let go of, of shame, of regret, of guilt over things in our past. Your scripture says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. God, help us to really believe that. And Father, if there's somebody here this morning who's never experienced that freedom from the past. I pray that right here, right now, they would just say, God, I need you. I, man, I failed in so many ways, and I just confess that to you. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins.
I believe he came back to life to give me a new life, and God, do I need one. And Father, I just, I thank you that this new life with Jesus is a life where we can experience healing and hope. And God, I pray too that you would enable us to have, Lord, really the desire and the courage to share this message with others. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.